Dear listeners, welcome to Faces of Digital Health, a podcast about digital health and how healthcare systems around the world adopt technology. With me, Tiasha Zaitz. This episode is the last one in the series of three discussions about natural language processing in healthcare. In the first episode, I discussed the state of symptom checkers with Jeff Cutler, CCO of Ada Health, the leading symptom checking provider in the world. In the second episode, the CEO of Suki, Punit Singh Soni, explained where voice technology is today in helping doctors better manage their medical records and notes taking. And today's discussion will give you a comment and a critical perspective on the use of ChatGPT and other large language models such as Google's MedPalm in healthcare. This was actually the first live streamed podcast recording. So I would like to thank everyone who took the time to join in and also add their own questions. I will also publish a summary of this whole series in our newsletter, so do check that at fodh.substack.com. The link is also in the show notes. Now let's dive in. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the live recording of a podcast session about the current state of chatbots and AI. We've seen no shortage of impressive use cases with ChatGPT since the end of November and then in December, when Google also unveiled their own medicine-focused solution called MedPalm. So the aim of this discussion today is to clarify the state of natural language processing in healthcare and maybe separate what is still currently in the idea stage from what's already in practical use and where is this field developing. I would like to give a warm welcome to our today's speakers, Alexandre Lebrun, the CEO of Nabla, and Israel Krush, CEO of Hiro. And just as a quick warm-up question, Alex and Israel, can you very briefly describe what your companies do? So we will have that idea in our hands. Sure. So thanks for your invitation. I'm Alex Lebrun, CEO of Nabla. So Nabla is creating an AI-based medical assistant that makes healthcare professionals more efficient. For instance, it would automate clinical documentation or patient engagement, things that most physicians don't like to do and waste a lot of time on. So at Nabla, we are applying some technologies that we had worked before at Facebook AI Research for four years. So Facebook acquired my previous startup with .ai in the conversational AI space. And before that, I had a first startup called Virtuos in doing chatbots for customer service that was acquired by Nuance in 2012. So this is how we came to building what we do today. Thank you, Alex. How about Jairo, Israel? Yeah, so hi, everyone. Thank you for inviting me. Israel from Israel, the co-founder and CEO of Jairo. At Jairo, we enable large organizations that are information-heavy to deploy and maintain virtual AI assistance at ease. 
by virtual AI assistance, any type of conversational interface, whether it's chatbots on websites, mobile applications, or voice assistants on a call center. We do it in a quite a unique way, which is intentless, which potentially we'll talk about afterwards. But the idea is really to simplify or make it as easy, as simple, as fast as possible to deploy and maintain virtual AI assistance without predefining intents. Okay. Chat GPT is all the rage. Clinicians in the U.S. tested it for writing insurance payments claims that would justify a procedure they did on a patient. Promises and use cases of chatbots like this include the summarization of healthcare records to get a short overview of patients' medical history, diagnostics propositions to simplify jargon-based reports. Research even says that this AI tool achieved over 50% in one of the most difficult standardized tests in medicine, that's the U.S. medical licensing exam, and ChatGPT was also recently included as a co-author of a peer-reviewed paper. So what else did you see being tested with ChatGPT in healthcare? So I think that ChatGPT today is the sandbox for all humanity regarding what are the conversational AI capabilities. What a lot of people are astonished by, and for a good reason, is the human-like nature of ChatGPT. So how it actually constructs the answers that it replies based on the world data that was trained pre to 2021. When it comes to healthcare, obviously we have a lot of data, as you've mentioned, around healthcare procedures and claims and symptom checking or triaging that ChatGPT, while with all of the disclaimers that it will give you at the beginning, you can actually get an answer that might sound really convincing. Not all of the time, while it sounds or being convincing is actually accurate. So I think that the issues with accuracy with ChatGPT is something that people still don't quite understand a lot. When it comes to other type of usage that I've seen regarding healthcare and the use of ChatGPT, so you talked about summarization of medical records, but I would say that any type of summarization, not necessarily medical records, so even research papers that are related um, or conditions, symptoms, diseases to be explained easily, that's something that we've seen being used by ChatGPT. Given the human-like nature of their answers, it can be also used for becoming like a body for you. So in mental health, not to diagnose or help with mental diseases, but actually being your body or friend to have conversations about everything um, in the world, something that a lot of startups uh, in the mental health space are currently testing uh, with or without ChatGPT, understanding more dietary and allergy even restrictions. And that gets to maybe... I would say a broader topic of answering frequently asked questions or general questions about the world's data. So it can come from like a dietary or allergy restriction, but when you think about a healthcare scenario, we deal a lot with administrative type of use cases. Some of them require information about the hospital or the clinics themselves. So it can be from opening hours to parking arrangements. So any type of frequently asked question that is related to the service providers in the healthcare world. Alex, do you have anything to add? Is there something that you saw that either surprised you or you thought was interesting in terms of what people in healthcare tested ChatGPT for? So first at meta level, I think the really new thing that ChatGPT 3 brought is the how it's easy to test a new thing 
to do a minimal viable product just to if you have an idea of automating something you can really and you have no data you have nothing you can still do something with chat gpt it would be wrong sometimes but it would be enough for like physicians for instance to to project themselves using your future products and you can find out if it's valuable and if it's worth investigating more. And before large language models, if you want to do that, you, of course, you can use machine learning models, but you still need a minimal amount of data to train the first version. Before that, there is nothing to try, nothing to test for your users, for healthcare professionals, for instance. And now with zero data, you can do that. So the, the, this easiness to do prototypes and MVPs is absolutely makes a huge difference, I think, and will accelerate the uh, production of new things on the market. And then for healthcare applications, I think Israel did a good job to summarize lots of things that are very interesting. I especially concur on the coach slash patient education side. Every time you need to spend a lot of time with chatting with patients, maybe for lifestyle changes, for behavioral changes, more support. This is very efficient for that, very convincing. It's also really good at automating many administrative tasks, and it will get better at that in the coming months, I think. The one area where I think we shouldn't use it for now is checking symptoms or doing any kind of diagnostics, because sometimes it's wrong, but as Israel mentioned, it's very confident and the form is really always really good. So it's easy to, it has a lot of confidence and it, is, it can say something wrong with, but the form is perfect and it's very dangerous. And so this is, a, I think, a very important area where we would like to use AI, but ChatGPT hasn't made a difference yet. Israel, in one of the blog posts on the Hira website, I thought one thing that was mentioned was very insightful, and that is that conversational AI doesn't necessarily correlate with chatbots. So you can have chatbots that are not based on conversational AI. Can you clarify that difference? So when does a chatbot use AI and when not? And maybe we can also talk a little bit more about what are the differences between symptom checkers, because we know that there are a lot of players in the field and what we now see with the chat GPT. Yeah, regarding conversational AI and chatbot. So basically, if to summarize it in one sentence, conversational AI can, might not, power chatbots. So chatbots is just one application, a text-based interface that can be on your website, on, on your mobile app, on the social networks, again, that is related on text, and it may use or may not use a conversational AI. By using conversational AI, it means that there are some heuristics or models that have been trained on NLP technologies, whether it's ML, deep learning type of technologies, whether it's computational linguistics type of technologies, the use of knowledge graphs, the use of speech-to-text that are more advanced, whereas chatbots don't necessarily need to use them. So if you think about V1 of chatbots and we think about the the hype that was around them back in, I don't know, 2013 to 2017. It was, most of them were rule-based. They they call it chatbots, but in reality, 
they, are, they were more like click bots. So you had a different graphical user interface where you have a bunch of suggestion buttons and you basically try to navigate the end user to a specific outcome. And everything that you say that is outside of the workflows that were predefined, you, you would get a misunderstanding or I'm sorry, can you rephrase? Sometimes even like these chatbots interfaces uh, they blocked the chat window. So you can only press specific buttons. And I think that the failure of uh, a lot of these type of applications before uh, conversational AI really became a thing, before the large language models became a thing, before we're able to deal with context in a meaningful way that created a lot of hype and then a lot of disappointment. Uh, disappointment. And now we are seeing, I would say, a bunch of chatbots that are powered by conversational AI or other interfaces such as voice assistants that are powered by conversational AI that are much more sophisticated. Even if they are based on some intents, it's not like it's a completely rule-based approach. They have some uh, learning or inference based on very large statistical models or understanding of how language is being composed. But I would say that the main difference is that a lot of the time the answer isn't necessarily deterministic meaning it would be hard for you to really understand or explain to the customer how did we get there? How did the AI answer the question? That's a huge difference, I would say, between these two. I think the fact that there are two worlds, the world of rule-based chatbots and and the world of more LLM, large language model-based chatbots or conversational AI systems and we would like the best of both worlds, but it doesn't exist quite yet. So rule-based, at least it's deterministic, deterministic. You know that if these conditions are met, it will answer this and it won't make something illegal or embarrassing for your users or customers, which in healthcare is still more important than in other industries. But these chatbots, rule-based, if you happen to go outside their rules, they don't know anything, they are very dumb, and they are more like clickbot, as Israel mentioned. The, the second world, the other world, is these new LLM-based chatbots, very strong at having conversation anything you want, very conversational. They have some, something that looks, sounds like common sense, but not deterministic, which can be a big problem for your business. <laughs> and I think somebody will eventually manage to take the better of both, and it will be incredible. But definitely the fact that it's not deterministic is a big problem. My first company, we sold chatbot. It's very interesting. Our clients in Europe, so sometimes they make mistakes and they are not fully deterministic. Our customers in Europe, they don't really care if sometimes a chatbot is wrong, if they think it's funny. But as soon as we started to move into the U.S. and sell to U.S. customers, AT&T, Coca-Cola, companies like that, they were so afraid because one mistake can mean a $10 million judgment if, for instance, the chatbot says something really wrong and embarrassing for the company, so you cannot have uh, live with non-deterministic things, so this is the issue. You mentioned that we can expect the two approaches to merge, so rule-based ba- with AI chatbots. Can you maybe offer a little bit of a reflection of how did you react when the news about ChatGPT and then MedPalm came out? For most people, we just didn't follow the development of the field closely, but you do. You follow the advancements on a daily basis. So was this something that surprised you? Was it not impressive to you? What does 
the release of these solutions mean for your companies? And Alex, maybe you can start this time. Chat GPT was not a big surprise because we had been using GPT-3 for a while and it's just uh, like a fine-tuning of GPT-3 for the chat communication mode. And what the most surprising was how the noise it made and everybody suddenly even... Like yesterday in France on the main newspaper, like popular newspaper, like equivalent of USA Today, on the first page was a huge article on the secret of ChatGPT. It's the first time ever I see this. Normally this newspaper, which is called The Parisian, is more about the last soccer game or things like that. And half of the first page was about GPT, ChatGPT. So the most surprising to us was when GPT-3 was out, nobody outside the machine learning circles or engineering circles and hacker news and nobody talked about it. But now my parents are calling me to ask me about ChatGPT because they want to know. So this is the biggest surprise. And before that, GPT-3 was incredibly powerful, but th there were previous GPT-2 before that and it started with BERT a few years back. So it, I think the progression of large language models was, was we could expect it. But the reaction of the world for ChatGPT is incredible. Israel? Yeah, I agree. I think that so first when ChatGPT came out, we just moved to a new office and I had to give a speech regarding the new office and I've asked ChatGPT to, to write the speech for me. And I think that I've used this technique when I actually made the speech and I fine-tuned it like I've said it, make it more exciting, make it less formal, so it will be, be more like my style. Thanks to uh, the, the spouses of the employees and so on and so forth. And they actually presented quite a good result. And I think that for me, it was a moment to emphasize to the entire company that, okay, we are tracking LLMs and we are tracking conversational AI for quite a time now. But this, to Alex's point, is a significant point in, of, in time in which a lot of other outsiders, if you want, will get exposed to the power of this technology today and how it will look like in the future. So it might present risks in terms of a lot of new startups, again, to Alex's points earlier, can create MVPs now. And I believe that this release is, I don't know, we'll need to see how it plays out, but it has the potential to be like AWS for the NLP world, for the conversational AI world. Yeah. So AWS, before that, like you should have had like, a bunch of people that know hardware and build like servers in specific rooms and wire and so on and so forth. And all of a sudden, everything is in the cloud and it's in a click of a button. So not the exact equivalent, but somehow similar in terms of like how easy it is today to start um, an NLP company. It might not be a good NLP company, it might not be a business-worthy NLP company, but the amount of incubants that I'm expecting us to get into this category in the next couple of um, years is great. And I wanted to make sure that the entire company understands that while these are the risks, there is also a lot of opportunity. There is a lot of opportunity because we are already funded. We already have customers. We conduct tens of millions of conversations and messages with these customers. We have our own unique data sets. We, you know, LLM is just one part of what it takes to build a good conversational AI platform. It's a lot about the orchestration and how the different parts, like the speech-to-text, plays with the LLM, uh, plays with the context that you handle, and decided to look at the opportunity. How can we leverage the advancement in our field to make our assistance much better and to make sure that it actually creates more opportunity than a risk for us. 
going maybe from all the media reports to your observations and expert assessments. So on 11th December, Sam Altman, the CEO and founder of OpenAI, tweeted that, I quote, Chat GPT is incredibly limited, but good enough at some things to create a misleading impression of greatness. It's a mistake to be relying on it for anything important right now. It's a preview of progress. We have lots of work to do on the robustness and truthfulness. So I want to stop here for a little bit. Alex, you mentioned earlier that you would not use this tool for, say, uh, diagnostics. Where do you see the current reliability of these solutions? To which extent do think that maybe, I don't know, they are actually very highly reliable. The CEO of such a company as OpenAI can make a disclaimer as a protection towards any lawsuits or something like that. Well, I think Sam is honest, protecting against lawsuits, but also it's his true opinion. ChatGPT is not reliable at all. It, it, may, it makes mistakes, makes hallucinations, and the danger is... As we said, it is so confident and the form, the language is so perfect that you, these hallucinations are well hidden and very hard to catch if you read quickly. And so this is very dangerous. When ChatGPT is wrong, as everybody knows, if you've tried it, it's not like suddenly the language is wrong language. Is that the, the, the meaning, the deep meaning or the deep reasoning is not right. And it takes concentration and detailed reading to find this, these mistakes. And so I think... It cannot be used as is today, maybe for SEO, like not content generation where you don't care if there is a mistake in the middle. Of course, this is, this will, this is the first application of these things, but it still requires, as Israel said, a lot of work be, before you can use it. Uh, so if, I think today, if you really want to use it, it should be supervised. So it, it should suggest things that will be uh, approved by a human operator or the user themselves. And, but then if you want to apply them for an actual task, you need to, I think the solution will be to have another model, machine learning model that is not based on GPT-3 or ChatGPT, and that is trying to classify the trustworthiness of each output of the GPT-3 model, you see what I mean? So supervision by another model. And so there is a lot to do. Having incredible, having a nice MVP, a nice prototype or demo that you use to raise your seed around is one thing. Having a product on the is even if it, the first thing looks like 90% complete, the last 10% is a huge work in terms of fine-tuning, security, explainability, integration, real-world product. You need to build a product on top of that. And so I think this is where what startups will do now, but they won't have, they will have to spend less time on, on the core model, but more time on all these things on AWS, as Israel mentioned. Israel, I'm sure you have a comment there and maybe you can add to that. How do you then work with the customers when it comes to fine-tuning? Do you work on a customer basis, basically, with the experts from the organization that you work with to really fine-tune the models that you use to a specific use case? Yeah, so I think that something that we constantly educate our customers, partners, is around this trade-off between how easy it is to deploy and maintain your solutions, your conversational AI, to how control, how much control do you have 
on top of them. So for example, let's say that we create an app where we direct all the traffic to chat GPT-3, right? And it answers without any supervision. So it sounds like it's plug and play. It's very easy to do, but the organization can't really control the output. And if it can control the output, it has a massive issue, especially if it's an enterprise customer, especially if it's in the healthcare industry. So I think that we're constantly asking ourselves and our customers, what is the right balance between, on the one hand, we want to make it as simple, as fast, as easy for you to deploy virtual AI assistance for various use cases. On the other hand, you really want to control the output. You really want to make sure that you don't provide the misinformation. You, you really want to have a full testing experience before you release it out there. You want explainability of AI. And I think for a lot of these issues, just tackling or plugging in ChatGPT won't really work. Now, what we do today is we use GPT-3 or, or other large language models to specific uses, mostly not, by the way, in terms of full understanding or full inference. So I'll give you an example. We rely heavily on them to extract specific entities. They are very good at name entity detection, uh, getting a sentence and understanding the name of an entity or a location. So these are specific tasks that we might use either machine learning models or uh, these large language models. Another thing that apparently they're very good at, and, and we talked about it, is sound more human. So we were very much focused around goal completion. How can we help the maximum amount of users, of patients, for example, to complete their goals, whether it's a scheduling procedure or whether it's an information request. And we were less focused around making the natural language generation, the response, more human-like. If you give GP, even you can try it on chat GPT, a bot response and tell them, make it more human-like, it's actually provide a very interesting results and a better customer experience if you want. So we try to use LLMs in general to augment some of the experience where we are taking full responsibility on the actual response that we generate. So we use them in parts and we might use them to make it more human. We might use them to extract several entities. But at the end of the day, when our customers will ask us, why did we get this answer? We'll be able to explain it. And that's based on our tech. So it's really an orchestration issue that, again, I believe that the players that have been in the field and dealt with some of these issues in the past will help a lot. I'll give you maybe one last example. We talked about conversational AI being an omni-channel solution, so not only chat or text-based. So think about the call center operation where you want to automate some of the calls. You can't really reply with this one-page long answer that you get from ChatGPT. So you really need to think about the medium in the sense of how do you actually communicate to the end user, how long is your answer to, to be read to the end users. And that's another part of the orchestration that I'm talking about. Alex, earlier you mentioned that now, you know, your parents are asking you about chat GPT. This is a question for both of you. So what about your clients? Did they came to you with any questions in a sense of, I'm not sure we even need you anymore now that we have, we can apply this tool. So what did you see in that regard? What kind of feedback did the clients give you, if any? It's interesting. I don't think they were... I think our clients understand quite well, we train them <laughs> and they understand quite well machine learning and 
what is a large language model and what works well with ChatGPT and what doesn't work as we we talked about earlier today. So I think they would be worried if we tell them, okay, now it, we, we switched, we threw everything away and we switched to ChatGPT entirely. <laughs> and it's what powers your the product now. So they, they are intrigued, but I don't think they, they are worried or especially excited other than that. Yeah, I think that, again, they hear about the buzz, uh, like others. I think that they realize that they can't really rely on large language models that were trained on the world's knowledge. I think that there is an understanding that smaller models and more uh, domain-specific models, I would say even not domain, even customer-specific knowledge is something that is uh, much more meaningful. And they are asking us, uh, where do we leverage that? And they can add some ideas regarding where can we add it in the future, but I think that they they know to make the differentiation between the hype to the actual uh, implementation on ground. It does, I believe, like the hype uh, does create more demand. So a lot of organizations that might thought it will take a couple of decades before we'll get to a level of human-like conversation. Again, ChatGPT is very human-like, even though it's not accurate all the time. So I think that that actually might also help drive more businesses and more interest from prospects. I would say that for investors, however, this is really confusing because on the one hand, like generative AI is all the hype at the moment and everyone are thinking and Sequoia wrote an article about that, about the next generation of generative AI companies and so on and so forth. But really the understanding of differentiation in what it is known as a crowded market as is, it becomes even more complex for some. A lot of hype, uh, some confusion and some opportunity. Uh, we have a few uh, questions from the audience, but just before we address them, I want to perhaps clarify one more thing. I want to, for the audience and for everyone to get an understanding of what large language models actually are and what do they mean in terms of reliability. Where are we with that today? Because chat GPT is based on a very broad set of documents and data, whereas MedPom, which was unveiled by Google, is much more specific for medicine. So MedPom is actually based on various databases of medical exams, questions posed by the public about healthcare. So it's a very different model in a sense of its specificity. Can you clarify a little bit that difference, you know, between different language models and how do you, do you when you're designing your solutions, are you strictly focusing on medical inputs for your models. I can take this first. So la large language models, it's, it's mostly about the number of parameters in the model. So GPT-3 has 175 billion parameters. It's been trained, 60% of the training data comes from Common Crawl. Common Crawl is a data set of 380 terabytes so it, it's about 10,000 times the size of Wikipedia if, of text found on the web. So you see the scale of what we call large. This is a large in large language model. And so as you know, the language model is very simple. You give me the first X word of a sentence and I need to guess the 11th word. So it just try to complete text word by word or token by token. So it's a very general task. It doesn't know about which language. It doesn't know about the industry. It doesn't know about the tasks, the questions we ask, the prompt. It's a very general approach. And this is why 
these large language models can be generalized and ask, answer questions or do so many different tasks with the right prompts. Uh, so when we talk then about things like MedPalm, the number of parameters and the number of the size of the training data is much smaller, but it's more supervised. So the training would involve humans in in many cases, maybe not the case of MedPalm, but that actually it's a specific case for ChatGPT who we will supervise the answers or or and reward the system when the answer or the reaction is good. And so this is a smaller data set, smaller number of parameters, but trained for a more specific task. And I think both are different, both are very interesting. And again, I think a good product should mix with the right heuristic, should maybe use both of these models. For us as startups, it's out of question to train a large language model. We don't have enough compute. We don't have enough, we could have enough data because it, some of it's public, but we are talking about tens of millions of dollars for each cycle of training. No normal startup can do that. And so we, we don't have the option to train our large language model, but we can uh, use large language model and work on the prompt, how we prompt them. And on the side, we can train our smaller language models, but very specific to our task. And we can also fine tune mid-sized language model to, to our task. So there, there are different weapons we can use. But clearly, the game is different now than it was a year ago uh, because we have new weapons, new tools, and I think the startups who are learning the faster how to use these things will eventually win the new game. We have a few questions from the audience. The first from Harvey Castro is, do you see that chat GPT would be considered by the FDA as a medical device? Who wants to take that one? Never, ever. Well, if, if, the, if, the, if the FDA is a green light to chat GPT, I'd be very surprised. No, um, you know, chat GPT is everything the FDA is having nightmares about. It's non-deterministic. It, somewhere it is, but we don't understand the, how, why the output is that. It's impossible in, today to prove that chat GPT will behave or not behave in a certain way in some situations. And very hard to prove that it won't suddenly advise to a patient to, to kill themselves, for instance. So I think chat GPT is a, alone, it will never pass FDA approval or any serious approval. So just in my opinion. Israel, do you share that opinion? There's quite a lot of AI algorithms that have already been approved by the FDA, and I'm not sure if for all of them you can really clearly state how the result came out from the inputs sent to the model. Yeah, I think that explainability is 100% the big one, but I do agree with you that if you have hard evidence that a specific software hard or whatever outperforms a human being, and by hard evidence, I mean like statistical evidence that was examined by uh, by, by experts, then it might get there, but I do agree with Alex. I don't see that GPT in its current form is anywhere close to it. And some smaller iterations focusing on niche cases that they might also be coupled with other technologies, then maybe, if you think about it, like the narrower the problem is, the higher, I would say, chance that they will be approved. But currently, it's by its name, right? It's a general model. So I don't think that it will make it. I would also claim that it's like asking whether a specific physician would be FDA approved. Uh, regarding symptom checking or triaging because ask three physicians about a complex situation 
not an easy one, you'll probably get at least two different answers. So I think that uh, this problem by itself is a bit non-deterministic by nature. You, you actually opened up an important question that I think is always present when it comes to technology in healthcare and clinical decision support systems. And that is that in clinical practice, you have different opinions. You have second opinions. Clinicians don't agree. But when it comes to technology, we suddenly expect that everything is going to be 100% correct, right? Yeah, and I think it it really depends on the problem or the issue that you're looking at. So, for example, if you're trying to detect cancer by uh, CT scans, uh, X-ray, MRI, and hopefully you actually have a big enough data set when you know the right labeling, meaning whether this specific was there a cancer or wasn't a cancer. And then you can compare what were the observation in real time of physicians versus a machine. Here, I don't think that this is the case, or at least like the labeling would be much, much, much harder to do. And also proving it from a statistical point of view would be much harder to do. Uh, We have quite a few questions and only 15 minutes left. So let's quickly go to the questions in the chat. Matiz is asking, is bringing more control to large language models, in your opinion, primarily about using the model to capture human input and forming a query for semi-structured database with checked facts. So how far do you think only providing more human-guided training can get us in terms of reliable large language model outputs? Matic, right, one, one way is to train your LLM, not to give the straight answer, but to use another system. It could be query structured database, as Matic mentioned. It could be also to use a browser to go online and fill a form on a website and on, on a, do something in a structured manner. And this is clearly a new of, of work, you know, very active these recent months. I think great things will come from that, uh, using GP, the LLM as a, an operator of another system and not system per se. And by the way, it is necessary because LLMs are, tra- are very static. They are trained every few months or, or so, but we, we need dynamic information. Maybe something happened a few seconds ago in my system and I want my LLM to be aware of that. So the solution for that is not to retrain my LLM every time there is an update in my system, but to train my LLM to go fetch this information wherever it is. So this is one avenue of getting more control on the LLM. Another avenue is to have another model classifying the output of my LLM as something that can be trusted, that is probably right. Or at least this model we're trying to explain to find the source of why the LLM behaved like in this way. So this is another area where we could find interesting solutions to get more control over LLM outputs. Um, so two quick points on my behalf. One, and that might be like a more bombastic statement. You can think about like how machines talk with machines today. It's through APIs, right? We have a very well-defined API. Now the question is, can we take language and translate it to API and vice versa? I think that once we do that, that uh, becomes like a very interesting area. So ju- just tapping into how to create this query of structured or semi-structured database and this translation back and forth between language and APIs. So that's one. Second thing regarding a human-guided training, just important to clarify, ChatGPT and a lot of the other applications on top of a large language model have some human feedback in the loop, right? Specifically, ChatGPT was trained with a technique called RLHF, 
uh, which is reinforcement learning with human feedback. That's again, like basically in, in that case, it was to make it much better in actually preserving context and having like multi-term type of conversations. So the human feedback was after five utterances, for example, unlike like previous training of models of after uh, one utterance. So human-guided training is already there. Uh, can we get it better? Can we get it more reliable? Um, absolutely. It might not be as part of the LLM, but actually with other components that behave nicely with the LLM. So again, this orchestration that I've <coughs> been mentioning quite a lot of time in these conversations. And yeah, they, they will get better and better. Additional question that we got from the audience is how well does chat GPT fare as a translator of medical jargon? to plain language that patients could understand? And what are the caveats? Have you have any considerations about this? So LLMs are really good at translation. For instance, Google Palm proved that with just five examples, their model is on par with highly specialized systems for English to German translation. So strong without specific training for that that we, I can assume that it should be really good at translating medical language into like normal patient language. Because after all, we could see these two things are two languages and the translation task is very well known. So I think it will work quite well. I haven't tried, but, but I'm quite confident it would be very efficient. The only caveat I see is if there is one mistake and it kills the patient, then you know, it's a big problem. As usual, we in healthcare should be great, but hard to make sure no mistake is made. Okay, another question. Should someone fine-tune chat GPT on WebMD and create a better interface for that? What would worry you if someone did that? What would excite you? What do you mean if someone? We're already doing that, or at least like partially. And again, it's not necessarily fine-tuning the large language models, but it's actually using some available sources out there, WebMD being like, for people that don't know, like the Wikipedia, if you want, for healthcare, that was still being used by a lot of physicians in the States. Yes, so specialized knowledge is definitely helpful to make conversations to that are better for a specific domain or topic that can improve the accuracy rate. And I think that you can think about it, or at least we think about it in layers. So we talked about the knowledge graph earlier. I think about three main layers of knowledge and, and, and with different importance. So the most important layer is the customer's data or the customer's knowledge, because this is the most reliable. We know that we are serving a specific customer, and that's what they think, for example, about a COVID vaccination. Then you have the second layer, which is might be around a specific domain or an industry. So, for example, what the CDC or what WebMD thinks about a COVID vaccination, and that's the industry or domain layer. And then you have the general layer or the language layer or the world's knowledge layer, which might be Wikipedia or even Reddit. <laughs> That's where a lot of the time you get some mistakes. So I think that understanding or prioritizing between these different knowledge layers and being able to first try to get a response from the most accurate one would help a lot. And if you get more and more domain-specific knowledge or even customer-specific knowledge, 
that will make your assistance much better. I think we went through all the questions that were in the chat, but since we do have eight minutes left, I would like to ask you both, what is for you currently the most difficult thing when you are improving your products with large language models? Very good question. I think in healthcare, most difficult thing, and not just with large language models, but I think with machine learning models in general, it's very slow and complicated and expensive to get data and also feedback from users. And so, for instance, if I change my model to generate the clinical documentation after a consultation, it because I cannot attend these consultations, it, you know, data privacy, it's medical data, it's very difficult to know if what we changed works better or not. And so the feedback loop is extremely long and expensive because we need to talk to doctors one by one, or you need to develop some automatic ways to evaluate the quality of the models against the baseline. And in healthcare, because this is a nightmare and it is slow and expensive, especially it's very slow. So for instance, if you generate images like that, your feedback loop is one microsecond. You are just discriminate the quality of the image you produce. But in, in what we do in clinical documentation, for instance, we cannot use things like that. And it's very difficult to get this feedback loop. Israel? Yeah, completely agree. On top of that, I think that Handling context, so what was being said in previous terms and how you can actually relate to it and have a conversation versus one of questions. So preserving context, understanding context switches, being able to respond to context switches, that's a one big problem that I would say a lot of conversational AI companies deal with, as well as, again, probably less in text, more in voice, and that's latency and everything related with actually conducting the conversation with potential interruption. So while the assistant is starting to have the reply to the user and the user all of a sudden stops them and interferes also in voice when you don't have a visual in front of you, then it has to be real time. So everything related with latency is also a struggle and the combination of these two. So latency and preserving context. So understanding that you are in a very long multi-turn type of a conversation and still being able to respond on point and at relevant time. These are some of the challenges that we're experiencing. We actually just got another question, which I think we can take because we have five more minutes. So we talked about several use cases of chat GPT in healthcare, but now if we try to narrow it down, Nadia is asking, what do you think would be the most frequent use case with most potential of chat GPT in healthcare? So I don't know if it's going to be the most frequent use, but I think that one obvious use case for me is, again, ChatGPT today is being used by a lot of people in the world as an assistant that helps you ideate and open your creativity. So I think about it in the healthcare. If a physician now has a complex issue and he has a bunch of data points and he thinks about specific directions, he won't ask for ChatGPT for the answer or for guidance, but it might use them as a pal, as someone that will open or unblock creativity for him in terms of trying to understand various options that are available. So I think, again, it's less about uh, giving a definitive answer and more about opening blocks and helping with creativity. On my side, I'm very excited by patient-facing 
uh, use of chat GPT and successors. Uh, so for instance, doing patient education or asynchronous follow-up after a consultation to make sure the treatment is well followed. It takes a lot of time. It's very expensive. It's a big gap in the healthcare systems. And I think chat GPT-like systems could be really good at that. Okay, thank you. We have three more minutes. Maybe just one last question. We talked about the potential, about the positive use case, but what about the negative use cases? For example, if a doctor used chat GPT to write a claims for the insurance uh, to cover the procedure that was done on a patient, why wouldn't an insurance agent simply use chat GPT to write a denial of that claim. Where do you see any potential negative sides of the use of these models? Everywhere. It's, uh, yes. and it's, it's going to be a whole new world and all, uh, already I think that uh, some gov- governmental entities are starting to think about what is allowed, what is not allowed. Not only governmental, by the way, also I think like Stack Overflow, which us developers they use uh, quite often, they forbidden like ChatGPT answers and for a good reason. So I think that uh, we will need to, as a society, we'll need to create like the right balances or at least how can we deal with basically fake news, fake entities, fake information that becomes much easier to generate. Alex, anything? Yeah, I, I agree. And it's that I think all industries and life in general, we have this threat of what can you trust? It's so easy to generate any content. And also with the risk of mistakes that can be easily done, but well hidden by the systems. So I think these are examples of things we'll have to work on to have industrial applications. And with that, I think we can end today's session. Alex and Israel, thank you very much for joining this discussion. Sincere thanks also to the audience that took time to tune in and also contribute with their questions. And I will also write a summary in the monthly newsletter that we publish. I would also like to just take a a quick second to thank Matiz Bernik and Robert Tovornik, who are the data scientists at Better, with their help for preparing for this session and uh, yeah that's it you've been listening to faces of digital health a proud member of the health podcast network stay tuned subscribe to the podcast to get new episodes automatically and also check out our newsletter at fodh.substack.com that's fodh.substack.com and see what we covered in the last month stay tuned